This presentation is from Design Research 2020, Day 2. Our next talk uh, comes from Sean Smith. Sean's the owner at U1. Um, I think we've all had situations where a client has hit us with a project brief that feels unbelievable um, and unbelievably unrealistic uh, with big scale and, and short time frames. Um, but I, I can't say that I've ever come across something of the scale that Sean's about to talk through. Um, this is going to be interesting in terms of how do you rapidly respond and how do you rapidly scale a team um, in response to uh, what looks to be quite a, quite a massive ask on the part of his client. So, Sean, hello. Thank you hey. for joining us. Welcome. Thanks very much. Okay. Well, I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land where I'm sitting, um, and I also pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. So Steve was saying, my name's Sean, and I'm a researcher, and I have been for 25 years now. Also co-owner of a company called U1, um, and we're a specialist experience research consultancy, and we've been around since 2000 called Usability One. Um, as suggested by the title and as Steve um, introduced, um, I'm going to be talking about a project we completed last year that was of a scale that goes beyond anything that I've been involved in. And in talking to you know, others in our community, it, it seems pretty novel. So we thought that you know, the wider um, research community might be interested in hearing about it. So um, where it all began, one day last year, I was at the pub having lunch with our team and uh, it was just before Easter and I received an email from someone called John Dirks who works at a company called Blink UX and they're based in Seattle. And that was following an introduction from a, a good friend of mine who'd worked with John in the past. The email was about a project that Blink was um, delivering on behalf of a local client, um, a ubiquitous tech firm based in Seattle. Um, and, that, and it involved a significant Australian component. So in the email that he sent, there are a few things that, that stood out. The first of those was um, that in Australia, they were looking con to conduct 300 um, remotely moderated interviews, 90 minutes in duration that they were running the same number of sessions in the US. So a project that was looking to run 600 um, remotely moderated sessions. The project was on a fast track and uh, the sessions needed to be conducted in the first two to three weeks of June. And he quite kindly suggested that I take a deep breath. So before I took a breath, I had um, a bit of a panic reaction, um, but took the breath. And um, so I suppose for a bit of context, U1 is quite a small business. We're a team of six. And the scope of this project was um, really mind boggling. So my thoughts immediately turned to how could we possibly service this type of project? And, and John from Blink, um, which is a company of 150 people, he freely admitted that the proposed scale of the project was also challenging for them. Um, so despite being daunted by the scale of the project, we're also really excited by it. So quickly got back to John, said, yep, we'd be interested, but I was also really upfront about the, the size of our business and some of the challenges that we saw um, we'd encounter in trying to scale up so quickly in order to be a reliable partner on the project. So we quickly teed up a call with the team from Blink that were going to be leading the project. And from there, things progressed over um, the course of a couple of weeks until they decided that they wanted to work with U1 to, to deliver um, the Australian component of the project. So that was exciting, but um, a little bit scary at the same time. So whilst I can't name the client who was sponsoring the research or talk about the findings for um, commercial reasons, not so concerned about that. I think what I'm really more interested in talking about is 
um, how we went about delivering the project and not screwing it up. Um, spoiler, we didn't screw it up, which is great. Um, plus some of the things we learned along the way. So at a high level, but the client was really interested in establishing a benchmark of the user experience of one of their product suites. And that was with two clearly defined audiences from within one specific sector across two key markets for them um, in the US and Australia. So there were some primary goals that they were looking to achieve. The first of those was identifying opportunities for improvement in user experience of individual products within the overall product suite. Um, they wanted to create a benchmark against which future future iterations could be compared. And I just want to point out that despite the scale of the, the project we're talking about here with 600 participants in total, we are talking about a qualitative benchmark as opposed to a, a quantitative benchmark. Um, interested in exploring whether or not the product suite is meeting the, the user needs. Um, they were interested also in comparing the user experience of a competitor's product suite. So that was incorporated into the study. Um, and then finally, all of this research would inform the overall user experience and product strategy for their product suite. So um, initially we were somewhat overwhelmed at the thought of how we might manage um, and resource 300 interviews over the course of two to three weeks. So on, on the screen you have to be seeing how just our mind was bubbling up from you know, 300 people, how we going to do that and given the size of our acting project commitments that we had that would overlap with the June period proposed by Blink. So that's traditionally the busiest part of the year for us when we're already kind of stretching and bringing in contractors to help ourselves out. Um, but we soon learned that the intention was to chunk the project down into an exploration of individual products within the product suite, including some competitor products. So we went from thinking about how we were going to do 300 interviews to um, got broken down into 10 individual but interconnected projects all running simultaneously. So that clarified how we needed to approach resourcing the project. So it meant that we needed 10 individual researchers that took on a product each, along with a project manager who would help um, grease the wheels, make sure everything kept moving, and a project lead along with some um, quality assurance support as well internally. So it was a bit of a lows and fishes moment for us because we're thinking, okay, we understand now exactly how we would need to approach it, but we had to work out how we could turn our six people into a team 16. By breaking down the interviews across 10 products, um, that was an approach that was going to be mirrored between the US and Australia. So that meant that we'd be able to pair a US researcher from Blink and an Australian researcher from U1 on each product. And that allowed for 60 interviews for each product across both locations. Um, the intention was for the researchers in the US to start their fieldwork a week and a bit ahead of here, us here in Australia. So that meant that we could benefit from any learnings um, that they had. Um, and then the goal was for both teams to reach the finish line at around the same time. So as the approach was fleshed out, it became apparent that the timelines um, would need to flex. So you might recall that in that initial email, I highlighted that they were speaking about two to three weeks to complete the fieldwork. But as they dove um, into the, the project and the logistics with the client, it was agreed that those timelines could push out to, to five to six weeks, which was a, quite a relief for us. So, I mean, it was really clear that we couldn't manage the project with the permanent team that we had. And so we had to go out to our networks to help us find additional people we needed. So I've been hiring researchers for a really long time. And in my experience, true researchers um, are some of the hardest people to find and, and they're quite rare. Um, and compounding this is that they're also very much in demand. So our challenge was to quickly find at least eight of these rare and in-demand individuals who are available when we needed them and at quite short notice. So to our relief, um, we 
found that our networks did deliver on this challenge uh, to the point where we actually became connected with um, way more than the minimum of eight researchers that we needed in order to deliver this project. So um, along the way, there were some people that we met that we were really keen to work with, but in the end, we had to count them out based on some factors that I'll touch on uh, a little bit later. But overall, we found ourselves in a really comfortable position in terms of resourcing, which was great. So from the very start, we were scratching our heads thinking, how can we do this to the point where we actually to realise that this was something up. And what was really great was it allowed me to step away from working um, on the, the project as one of the researchers. So my initial thought was that I could be a researcher and also be a um, uh, do the, be the lead on that. But um, you know, as it turns out, my hands were full just by um, being the, the lead on the project. So I can't imagine how I could have delivered on that and the role of researcher. One of the confronting aspects of scaling the team so quickly in adding 10 people to our existing tight-knit team of six was that in the end we were engaging six people who none of us had had any direct experience of working with. So the other four people that we brought onto the team we had worked with previously. Um, sorry, it's my colleague John is just uh, interested in the, uh, the talk, so he's going to come in and, and sit in. Apologies for that. <laughs> uh, so I've got somebody to, to perform for um, in person. Um, so um, whilst we felt that there was some risk here, um, it was mitigated somewhat by everyone being known to us in some way. So either someone that we might have worked with um, directly previously or there are recommendations from someone in our network. Um, and we're also comfortable that the internal processes that we have would be sufficiently robust to put us on solid ground, along with uh, an experienced and motivated project lead in me, um, who really didn't want us to screw this up. So after a lot of phone calls, emails and, and coffee catch-ups, we'd assemble our team and it looked like this. So we had, as I mentioned before, 10 researchers. So Kira um, is a member of our team, but the other nine researchers were all contractors. Um, as I mentioned, some of them we'd worked with before, either individually or as, as a business, as you one. But um, yeah, there were a number of people there that we hadn't worked with previously. We also put together um, a quality assurance team. So that involved me and two of my colleagues, John and Luella. And we engaged a project manager, Sid, who was um, integral to um, delivering the projects successfully, and then fulfilled the role of project lead. Um, one of the aspects of the protocol that did work in our favour was the decision to remotely moderate the research. So we benefited from being able to distribute our team. So in terms of um, the physical capacity of our office space to accommodate um, 10 researchers or running project at the same time, we don't really have that kind of facility. And it would have turned it into more like a call centre vibe rather than a research um, vibe. So we, we didn't think that that would have been optimal. So the ability to distribute the team was great. People were able to do it from home or they had a home office and um, three of our team are also based in Sydney as well. So now we had our team. Um, before we onboarded them, there was still some prep that we had to do so that once we kicked off, um, everything had been in place so we could hit the ground running. Uh, our role at this point was to apply an Australian filter to the recruitment criteria and the moderation guides that have been prepared by Blink and um, the end client. They did require some changes and tweaks and we also had to set some issues regarding recruitment as well here in Australia. The client had to sign off on those changes um, before we proceeded with those to ensure that they didn't impact on the consistency of approach or any of the intent of the research. So in order to mitigate our risk with recruitment as well, we decided against putting all of our eggs into the one basket and engaged two different recruiters, um, KB Research and Farron Research, both companies that we've worked with a lot over the years. 
and they were tasked collectively with sourcing 360 participants in total because we, we ran some pilot sessions for each of the two audiences and we also over-recruited in order to allow for, for no-shows. So we didn't get held up if um, people didn't show up. We had somebody else that we could um, go straight to in order to fill a time slot. Um, and the decision to run with two recruiters did make things a little more complicated as we had to duplicate some um, effort around those two providers and keeping straight in our own heads and our communications, who was doing what. Um, but I'd definitely do it again. And we were completely upfront with the two of them that we were splitting it across um, the two companies. And in order to free up our researchers from admin as much as we could, our project manager, Sid, managed the recruitment and the interactions with the recruiters. So all our researchers had to do was set their schedule with Sid and he managed that with the recruiters. Um, and Sid was just a master of the spreadsheets. He was rocking a lot of spreadsheets. So um, the protocol that was decided upon in order to deliver on the, the client objectives, I mentioned earlier that the interviews were 90 minutes in duration, remotely moderated, and we used Zoom to um, run the sessions. Each interview consisted of two um, main components, so a setup and a data collection phase. And the setup, your typical sort of thing in terms of introduction to the researcher, introduction to the project, what the objectives, um, helping the participant to understand you know, what the purpose of the research is, why they were there. But then because we we're also going to be um, sharing screens and we're getting the participant to share their screen. There was a bit of technical setup that we needed to go through as well. Um, so we wanted to get to the point where they were um, ready to share the screen and um, not exposing any personal or private information. And I'll go into that in a little bit more detail later. And then um, we moved into the, um, the data collection phase of the interview. And that was your traditional task-based usability testing um, with a Think Aloud protocol, a capturing the benchmark data that was of interest to the client. We also had a, a, a warm-up task or a sample task, which was pretty simple, but that enabled the participant to get a feel for how the session was going to run before we got into the actual data collection itself. And then once we were moving into the, the real stuff, um, the participant and the moderator turned off their cameras. That preserved some bandwidth. Um, it also, uh, I think, removed some potential for distraction. And then um, the session recordings were really of interest to the end client as well. So it meant that um, by turning off the cameras, um, nothing was occluding what was happening on screen um, it, within the recording as well. So it was all, all the activity on screen that was being displayed. Okay, so I'm just gonna whiz through a couple of slides here to show you some of the benchmarking data that was being captured. Not going to go into that in any detail, but there was quite a lot. Um, and Jeff Sauro's benchmarking the user experience um, was used as a reference point in selecting the metrics that were captured in the study. But all up, once all of the 600 sessions were completed, there were over 7,000 data points to analyse and consider, which is considerable. So we're all getting really familiar with Zoom if we weren't already. Um, so each of our researchers had their own Zoom meeting room where they ran sessions from. So those of you who've used Zoom would know that you can uh, create individual instances of a meeting, which creates a unique ID, or you can have like your own um, ongoing persistent meeting room. And we, we went backwards and forwards as to which was the best approach. Um, and we decided to be, keep it simple and just have one single meeting room um, rather than having a heap of different um, IDs for every individual session that we were going to be doing. So you can attach a waiting room to um, meeting rooms and the researcher has to admit a participant um, and that removed the risk of a participant crashing into a live session because they all had the same link um, because either they'd arrived early or they might've had the wrong time. 
and the participants were advised the name of the researcher who'd be interviewing them and the waiting room was labelled with the researcher's name, so Kira's meeting room. So participants knew they were in the right place once they clicked on the link to join the meeting. And CDR PM, he monitored all of the meeting rooms and could see when a session was started or if someone was in the waiting room who shouldn't be there. So they might have made a mistake in terms of their schedule, for example, and he could follow up with the recruiters without bothering the researcher at that point. The recruiters also sent um, each participant a link to the Zoom meeting with instructions and links on how to download and install the Zoom app and enter a Zoom meeting. So hopefully they'd be ready at the start of the session. And we used a digital consent form that participants were asked to sign before the session started. And once again, our PMC could see all of the completed forms and was able to remind researchers um, to ask a participant to complete the form if they hadn't already done so before we actually started the, the session proper. During the setup phase, um, the, the researcher asked the participant to exit all accounts, close any open folders, close any applications and browsers, and to open a new browser session, enter guest mode, and to share the browser only in order to maintain their privacy. I'll go into this in a little bit more detail later. They were then asked to open two browser tabs, and the first of those was used to access the survey link. So I've got a, a dummy kind of screenshot of what that was like here. So we used the survey in order to deliver the task wording and also to capture the metrics like time on task, ease of use, confidence, et cetera. Um, the second tab was then um, used to access the product that was the subject of the usability test and associated tasks. So um, participant would read the task out loud uh, and they'd paraphrase it so were comfortable that they understood what the intent of the task was. They'd hit the start task button, which would initiate the timer. They'd move to the second tab, complete the task, come back to the, the first tab, there would be a button that says um, task completed and they would, um, that would end the timer and then they'd move on to the metrics questions. And each participant had a unique ID that was used to track their participation and the data that was collected by the survey tool. So the team at Blink had been working on tools for facilitating the data collection and analysis that would deliver consistency across two different companies and, and 20 different researchers, and also looking to streamline the process for the researchers as well. So we had a, a note-taking template and that was customised with the relevant tasks for each product because they did differ, um, but otherwise they're identical and standardised the data collection across the 20 researchers. And we were also provided by, from, by Blink um, with a findings document template and um, the Australian researchers completed that. Um, so that standardised the approach to analysing the findings and our team were really clear on what they needed to provide and how to focus their efforts. Um, so recruitment was underway and we had our team of researchers for a period of five weeks working to the following schedule. Um, and I'll, I'll go into each of these in, in a little bit more detail. So we had quite a lot to do in five weeks. Um, and the first week was really crucial for setting the foundations of success. So a key element of that was that the head of research at Blink, Tom Satvich, um, he spent a week embedded with us um, in that first week. And our relationship with Blink had got off to a really strong start. But having Tom with us um, for that week really solidified the connection between the two teams. So we kicked off um, in week one with an all hands meeting in our offices in South Melbourne with some of the team connecting via Zoom from the same location in Sydney. And I was up with the, the guys in Sydney for this particular meeting. I was at Vivid. Um, so it's just really um, helpful that that happened around the same time. So uh, focused in weeks to team up to speed and get them individually on the same page as the, their counterpart researcher in the US. And we started that process by getting them to watch recordings of three to four sessions that had already been completed in the US for the individual products. So I mentioned earlier that um, 
the intent was that the guys in the US would be starting a little bit ahead of us. So they already had a number of sessions in the can. Um, and we wanted to get everybody familiarized with the tools and protocols that were being employed. So we paired up our Australian researchers. So they then each took a turn at being a moderator and a participant. So that gave them the benefit of, as well as getting used to the tools and the protocols, it gave them um, some insight into what the participant experience would be like as well. So we thought that was really helpful. We'd also scheduled a pilot session um, with a real participant for each researcher this week. So we could get a, a simulated experience, I suppose, of um, what to expect when we moved into the live data collection. And that session was live streamed to back to the States and that allowed the client stakeholders because there were a number of different product teams that were interested in this as well as the people who commissioned it. Um, and it allowed them to, to watch the sessions, um, but we also, um, uploaded the recordings of the sessions as well. So um, the Blink um, US researchers, they watched those sessions and gave some feedback to the Australian researchers. So they connected and had a chat about what they'd seen and things that they could look out for and um, just to try and to ensure that we were maintaining consistency and approach across both of the, the locations, but also um, that the live streaming and, and the recordings and giving the, the stakeholders back in the US that opportunity to, to watch those helped um, build their confidence, I suppose, and trust that what we were doing here in Australia was very similar to what was happening in the US, where they were much closer to, to the process and, and to the team. Um, the, the Blink team did a really great job of consolidating and sharing any relevant feedback from stakeholders. And we could then filter that back to our team as a collective. So there was a lot of feedback, but they just picked out the things that were really useful, um, which we then filtered down to the team. Um, then, just at the end of the week, we reconvened um, as, a, as a team here in Australia, uh, just to see, you know, were there any questions? How was everyone feeling? Um, anything we needed to tick off before we got ready for um, data collection in, in the following week? And so what was good as well during this week is that the Australian and US researchers really started to establish a bond and there was a lot of um, communication through Slack and Zoom between them. Um, and that rapport just grew over the course of the project as well. So uh, week two, this was our first week of real data collection. So this was a really busy week for us. Um, Sid was working the spreadsheets as PM and, and working the recruiters and making sure everyone stayed on track. At the end of that first day, I checked in with everyone individually um, to you know, just sense check, how's everyone going, um, any concerns, anything that was unexpected, but all things seemed to be going quite well. I felt that the prep that we'd done in the week before had um, set a good foundation for the week that was unfolding. And amazingly, we completed all of the um, required 150 sessions in this week. And we found ourselves catching up with the US team who had started a week and a bit ahead of us and were doing the same number, number of interviews, but they hadn't experienced as good a run with recruitment as we had. So um, week three on the project. So our team turned their hand to data analysis and completing their, their findings documents. So again, more communication between um, US and Australian researchers as they conferred about their findings. We also had a, a pilot session for audience two in this week as well. Um, and again, as with the, the previous week, those recordings were uploaded. There was an opportunity for feedback um, where it seemed appropriate as well. Um, but yeah, um, at the end of the week, um, our, our researchers submitted their um, findings documents um, to their appointed U1QA person for, and Sid was again, busy ensuring everyone stayed on track. So week four was our second week of data collection. Um, uh, our QA team here completed the, 
the QA process, handed that over to our, our researchers. And in between sessions, they were able to respond in action, any feedback we had, and then send them on to um, Blink in the US. What was interesting with this audience was that they, they, um, their availability differed a little bit. And um, that meant we had to do more evening sessions. And they also struggled a little bit more with the technology as well. So as a result, we didn't quite fit all of the 150 interviews or, or we didn't complete 150 interviews in the, the Monday to Friday. Um, some of them spilled over to the Saturday, but still by, by the weekend, um, we finished all of the sessions as well, which was quite amazing. So uh, again, um, the, in, the Blink researchers in the US hadn't finished, um, we actually finished them. So we got into our final week of um, the, the project in terms of our engagement with our, our researchers. Um, so they turned their hand to doing their data analysis for audience two. And then by midweek, they were ready to hand over that to us for our um, QA process. So there was a lot of similarity in the findings between both audiences. So that meant that they could do things a little bit quicker in terms of turning it around. And we then quickly turned around our QA process so that our researchers could action any feedback. And um, they submitted those to the team at Blink. And um, that was the end of our researchers' engagement. Um, and they all moved on to their... Um, the next gigs and, and next commitment. So, you know, how did we do? Um, we think we did pretty well. Um, you know, we might say that, but um, definitely as with everything, there's always a little wrinkle here and there. So overall things did go really well. There were certainly some hiccups and, and issues along the way, which I'll um, cover a little bit now. So some of the small things, uh, occasionally participants closed the survey tabs that we were using to capture metrics and deliver um, the, the task wording. It wasn't a big issue. You could get them to open the survey again. And we just had to stitch um, the two data files back together for them um, after we finished the, the data collection. They didn't always click start at the beginning of tasks within the survey as well. So again, not a huge deal, but it just meant that we had to manually calculate what the time was on task and incorporate that into the data file. Um, this is something that sat with me. Um, I made the mistake of putting too much into single communications and inevitably people overlooked what I was asking them to do. And I had to bring it up with them um, individually, either because I noted that they weren't um, following instructions to a T or they were asking questions that I'd already covered in some of my communications. And while I initially found that a little bit frustrating, I was keen not to be a dick about it. Um, I realised they were all busy and not say I already told you about this. So I just had to relax and... and um, be content to repeat myself. And the goal really was to make sure that everybody had what they needed and they were being consistent in the approach that we were applying. So it was important to remind myself that these guys did have a lot going on. There was a lot of channels and there was a lot of communications flying around, things moving quickly. Um, so I think that you know, in future, I'd, I'd look for strategies to mitigate that. And one thing I might consider is using checklists, for example, so people could actually work through and tick things off um, as was appropriate, rather than relying on them reading things or, or listening to um, me talking, which um, you guys are pro unfortunately having to bear the brunt of right now. Um, so some of the bigger things, internet reliability in Australia is much worse in the, um, than in the US. And that's something that the client and Blink had not really um, been aware of before committing to the remote moderated approach. Um, based on this project and, and our engagement with other clients based outside of Australia, there's just this assumption that as a first world developed um, economy, the internet here is really good. And I think that we had a recent ranking of 62nd in the world or something like that in terms of internet speeds, which is really surprising for people outside of Australia. But fortunately, it, it didn't turn out to be as big an issue 
um, as we thought it might be, but there's no doubt that it impacted on a number of the sessions and it caused frustrations for participants and researchers alike. And this is particularly relevant, I think, given the current situation where we're all going to be leaning much more heavily on remotely moderated research. I mentioned earlier about the Blink team starting ahead of us with the intention that we'd all reach the finish line about the same time. So, um, and the intent there was that we could learn from their experiences, they could problem solve and make decisions ahead of us encountering anything. Um, but as we had slightly more aggressive timelines and more success with recruitment, um, they started to fall behind a bit on their schedule. So we caught up and in the end, we finished ahead of them. Uh, and that resulted in us encountering some issues or things that we had queries about, and we had to deal with those ourselves, which wouldn't have been, um, yeah, wouldn't have happened in an ideal world, I suppose. And, and related to this is that um, you know, U1 didn't come into this project until it had kicked off in, in the States, and, and the Blink team were working with the client stakeholders and the product teams um, on the protocol and um, creating the moderation guides, et cetera. So we, we were at some distance from um, the product stakeholders. So the, the um, leadership team here, we, we met the clients, um, but we didn't meet the product teams as well. Um, but there was definitely a direct relationship between the Blink researchers and, and the individual product teams as well. So that did become a bit challenging along with the time difference when we started running ahead and our team encountered issues or they just had some queries that they had to go through their Blink counterpart rather than having a direct line to the product team. And we didn't always have tolerance for, for the lag that associated with that. We had to make some calls and uh, make our own calls on some occasions. And I mentioned before that we were um, completing a findings document. So that was our role rather than to write actual reports that the Blink team were writing the actual reports that would be submitted to, to the end client. One of the issues with that approach was that um, we submitted those findings documents after our first week of data collection and, and the guys in the US, they had a look at those and they thought, yep, that looks good. They were roughly on par with the sorts of things that they were seeing. But it wasn't until they actually sat down and started writing their reports at the end of the data the entire, entire data collection that they started to realise, oh, they actually had additional questions and there were things that they had queries that they just wanted to clarify. Um, but our team had all um, pretty much moved on to, to their next gigs. So that went from um, being on tap in terms of um, communications and to there being some sort of lag. And so our team, they were all fantastic because they were wanting to ensure their success and they made themselves available. But the reality was it had to fit in around... Um, the commitments they had going on at that time. And everyone in the US was accepting of that, but it certainly caused them some issues um, and you know some frustrations, I suppose. Um, so definitely the, something that the Blink team have said that if this were to happen again, they would definitely get us involved more in the upfront process, as well as getting us involved in, in the report writing. So I've touched on a few things that um, you know, were, were wrinkles, but just to reiterate what went well, we got ourselves a SID. Um, so every project needs someone like Sid. I'd, I'd say hire him if you have a chance. We assembled an awesome team of researchers who committed wholeheartedly to the project and were motivated to produce the best possible outcome. And I'd work with any of those people again in a heartbeat and would recommend them to anyone. The recruitment went really well for us, better than in the US. And whether that's a cultural difference or a fluke, it's hard to say, but I can say that our recruitment partners did an excellent job and we happily recommend them as well. We also had a great partner in Blink and this was something that could have gone really bad, but it, it worked. Um, part of that, I think, is that we were really clearly well aligned in terms of um, our research best practice and also culture of the two businesses. We also had an end client that was 
um, you know, really clear on the complexity of what they're asking us and Blink to deliver. And, and they're also really appreciative of the work and the commitment that went into it. So there's just some learnings that I'd like to share related to um, remotely moderated research, which is you know, quite relevant, I think, to the current situation. So the quality of connections was a concern going into the project. And while it definitely did impact on sessions, it wasn't as significant as we feared it might be. And we're possibly um, experiencing some of the issues of remote research because somebody making noise next door that I have no control over and I apologize for that if that's disruptive. Um, what was um, more impactful was participants' level of technical competence and knowledge when it came to, to managing um, their hardware and their software. Um, so when they had to deal with their webcam and their mic and their, and their settings um, for sharing the screen, it was a significant challenge for some to make changes to those, alone sharing their screen. And we, we could lose uh, up to 20, 25 minutes to get them to the point where we could start the actual interview. We learned a lot as we went along and built that into our troubleshooting approaches, but um, they always managed to surprise us in some way. So as we lean more heavily on remotely moderated research, let's not fall into the trap of thinking that everyone else is just like us and comfortable with and has access to technology. Um, also, some of the participants were using their employer's hardware and that was locked down, which meant that they couldn't install a Zoom client or perhaps even allow Zoom to access hardware like the mic and, and webcam. Some participants were required to do some homework in preparation for the session, and while they were all, and they were all instructed to in, install the Zoom client um, ahead of the session as well. The Zoom client's more reliable than just using the browser plugin, and that's why that was desirable. We found that many participants hadn't com um, completed the preparations and sometimes had to be stepped through that process. So we had to get on the phone to them to talk them through installing Zoom, um, or, they, or give them some time in session to do their homework, which all impacted on um, the time available for the research itself. So to counter that, we let our recruiters know that that was happening. And we said, we'd be canceling sessions up front and they'd need to source a replacement if we started, if we continued to experience that. So clearly they were really keen not to lose participants. Um, so they really were strong in their follow-ups and um, with the participants and making sure that they were ready and it definitely helped. And we also gave our researchers um, license to cancel sessions if they felt the participant hadn't done the required prep. Um, that was very rare, but it did happen on a few occasions. It was important to the client that the experience for participants was as natural as possible. So they were really strong on their desire for participants to share their screen rather than the moderator sharing theirs. So the downside of this is that information and um, the, the risk of participants exposing personal information is much higher. And it was a big contributor to the issues I mentioned earlier about time lost in the setup. So we had protocols to try and preserve participants' private and personal information. So I mentioned earlier, we got them to shut down as many things as we could, log out as many things as they could as well, and to only share um, a browser that was in guest mode as well, um, and not their desktop but they routinely ignored some, if not all, of those instructions. Um, it wasn't willfully at all, but for, for the reasons mentioned previously regarding technical competency, and also I'd say a somewhat blasé attitude to their privacy. So in the interest of proceeding, we just had to ignore this when it occurred, and we dealt with that by um, getting the researchers to take a timestamp of where that happened, and then we actually edited the recordings afterwards, and that took a lot of time and resources to address. Um, so one other um, privacy aspect um, is related to the waiting room. So while waiting to be admitted to the meeting, some participants wandered away from their computer because maybe our researcher was running a little bit behind time. Um, and so they might then wander away from their computer and 
when they were waiting to be admitted by the researcher, the webcam was on, and it gave us a view into their home, of which they became kind of unaware. So sometimes we were witness to activities that um, they probably would have preferred not to share. Some considerations um, that, that came up for us. So as we were scaling up for this project, we were running another project for a Eurospace client, exploring a product they were launching into the Australian marketplace. And a really important thing for them was to ensure that the researcher um, was Australian. And to, that, to them, that meant they sounded Australian and they're really connected to Australian culture. So their goal was to ensure that the product they're releasing appealed and resonated with a local audience and didn't sound too American. Um, and their concern was that a researcher from outside of Australia wouldn't be alive to the nuance of feedback and might even possibly inhibit some feedback that participants might provide. So this client was more than capable of doing this research remotely themselves, but they invested a lot in a partner in Australia that um, could give them a truly local read on the product and not influence the feedback in any way. So that timing was really interesting because we met some researchers who we were really interested in working with, but they'd only been in Australia for you know, a few months. And so we felt that um, on that basis, we couldn't necessarily work for them with this project. We'd happily work for them with them on other projects but given that their client was really interested in cultural differences as well we felt everybody had to be kind of awake to those sorts of things that didn't mean we didn't work with people from outside of australia so we had people from um, the usa uk and bulgaria who were working as researchers on this project and that's you know we're a multicultural nation so we've got to expect um, that that would be the case in terms of researchers as well and flowing on from that, we also had to ask ourselves, does it matter if someone is Australian or Australian, but not in Australia when it comes to moderating research remotely? So the end client and Blink, they'd invested significantly in securing a local partner to conduct the research in Australia. And we spoke with some researchers, again, that we were interested in working with, but they weren't going to be in Australia for some periods of the project. And given we were conducting all of the sessions remotely, we had to ask ourselves, was there an issue with using researchers who weren't based in Australia? And in the end, we decided against that. And it was a difficult conversation to have with those guys and rationalise the decision. We could really only put it down to the vibe. It just didn't feel right to be commissioned to run research locally, only then to use people based outside of Australia to do the research, because in the end of the day, Blink could have done that themselves. So um, last slide. So just a few reflections uh, as well uh, and learnings. Being honest with partners is really important. So as a business owner or a leader, there's a need sometimes to be a little creative have a good poker face. Yep, we've done that. Yep, yep, no worries. Um, but that wouldn't have served us well here. It was really crucial to be upfront about the size of U1 off the bat and also the concerns about our ability to scale within the aggressive timeframe we were looking at. So, so Blink indicated that actually that honesty upfront was a significant reason why they decided to work with us. It's also important to be honest with yourself. So as the owner of a small business, you can be mindful of the bottom line. So I'd originally thought I might be able to be one of the researchers and manage the project. And whilst that would save us some money on a contractor, it would also reduce the risk associated with quality. So, you know, we'd be working with one less person that we didn't know or hadn't worked with previously. But it became evident that in an attempt to maybe save some money, I'd be exposing us to even more risk because there was no way I could have done justice to um, delivering on the role as a researcher, the project lead, quality assurance, and the other things that I have going on as a, as a business owner without compromising one or, or all of those roles. Blink and U1, we took a leap of faith in working together. We both had a lot to lose if this went badly, but um, we had an introduction between John and myself from someone that we both trust, and that was key to the decision to work together as well. And when it came to scaling our team, 
we relied on our networks to find the people that ended up working on the project. So a recommendation from someone in our network allowed us to trust the individuals they were introducing were the right sorts of people. And process and structure are essential to scaling and managing quality. So our internal processes and approach to research really stood up to a massive test in delivering this particular project. And process is important, but so is instinct. Um, as we met people that might work with us on the project, I relied a lot on instinct and feel when making decisions. Despite not having worked with some people before, getting a good feeling about them was important. And we felt if we had the right sorts of people, we'd back in our processes to make sure that we got the right result. And from a personal perspective, every now and then, I reflect on the relevance of someone in their mid to late 40s, me, to an industry that seems so geared toward youth and innovation. You know, innovation is implicitly associated with overthrowing the old way of doing things, which can mean the old people. And this is an industry that's populated by so many amazing, brilliant people who are much closer to the start of their career than I am. But I've no doubt that some of our success in um, pulling this off is due to the fact that I have been doing this for a while now. Um, that the, and the longevity of Yuan and my grey hair um, all helped link to have confidence that we knew what we were doing and be able to deliver. And there's no doubt that I mentioned instinct before, but the experience um, feeds that instinct. And finally, um, size doesn't matter. Um, small or large company or project research is research. So working with Blink, a company that's something like 25 times the size of ours, demonstrated that when it comes to um, our practices researchers, we're all facing the same challenges, whether that be managing client expectations or delivering quality research. And that's it. Thanks for your attention. And uh, I know that I spoke quite quickly there, so I apologise for that, but we'd love to have a chat. And just out of interest, you know, Yuan is here and we were supposed to be just across the way today, but uh, things got in the way of that. So thanks, everyone. Thanks very much, Sean. Thank you. I was uh, nodding along as you were going through your reflections at the end there. Um, and I, I think some of that uh, experience that you talked about um, probably helped you make a smart decision when deciding not to try and be both the, the uh, owner and, and manager of the business as well as a researcher on such an important project. Um, I, I, I reckon you made a, a really good call there. Very, very good call. Um, we've got uh, a few questions. Um, I, th I think you, you made a throwaway comment early on about recruiting uh, true researchers and them being hard to find. Um, Kaylee mm. is, is interested in what you mean by a true researcher. It's a, it's a really good question and it's, um, it's quite nuanced, I think, as well. Uh, it's a little bit of that instinct kind of thing. So I've got, uh, there's probably a number of characteristics or, or traits that I look for in people as researchers. So um, I don't think you necessarily have to have been trained as a researcher, but it's um, that you demonstrate those um, personality traits or characteristics of the things I'm looking for. So I think something that's really interesting, I've been reflecting on how um, I think I mentioned we were looking to mitigate risk a lot, and I think that's a really big part of being a researcher. But also, um, the, there's a duality there because you have to be comfortable with the unknown and the uncertainty as well. So, um, I'm, I suppose what we mean by real researchers is people who are, you know, exhibit those traits. You have to be interested in people. We're talking to people all the time. If you don't like people, then you're not going to have a very good career as a researcher. Mm. Um, yeah, you know that buzzword of empathy. But what I'm talking about there is just. Um, you know, we might be running eight interviews in a day or, you know, that would be extreme, but, you know, you're running quite a few across a number of 
days and you can get really blase about that sort of thing you've got to think about the fact that this is the first time for everybody that comes through the door or that um, enters our, our virtual meeting room um, being a problem solver um, being somebody who can be flexible and adaptable so these are you know good soft skills and, and traits that we expect a lot of people to have I think but um, they're the sorts of things that lend themselves to being a researcher I think I've encountered a lot of people who are um, you know probably better suited to being designers um, who have been interested in being being researchers. Um, so I suppose they're some things that I mean, not to denigrate um, designers and doing research. Yeah, I, there's a, 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 a big, big difference between being able to ask questions and being a good researcher. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, an, another question that came through from Melissa, um, she was hoping you could touch a little bit on what your QA process was like. Yep. So, um, that's a, it's a really good question. So, like, internally here, every single um, deliverable that goes out the door, it goes through a review process. So there's um, peer review and then um, there's also quality review as well. So um, at the end of the day, the buck stops with me around the QA process. So it's actually, it's going through the documents, ensuring that, one, you know, that there's no typos, that sort of thing. But it's also just looking at uh, the insights and, um, the, you know, is it logical? Um, are we telling a coherent story through that process? Um, so I, I head up our QA process, but I train the rest of the team through that process. So, mm. you know, it's not critical that it goes through me and that we've all, we're all looking at the same things when somebody's going through that QA process. So it's really, it's going beyond just looking at the dotting the T's and dotting the I's sorry, and crossing the T's and that sort of thing. It's, you know, can somebody, it's something that's really important to us when we deliver a a report is could somebody pick it up without context and make sense of it as well? There's um, a, a couple of related questions um, speaking to how you handled um, the analysis and synthesis process across so many different researchers, um, whether there are any sort of particular things that you put in place uh, to help with that. Yeah, so um, what was Interesting here is because we were looking at individual products, um, there was only two researchers working on one single product so that they were working together in order to um, analyze their findings and, and do some synthesis. But there was a little bit of a disconnect, I think, there between, um, say, the Australian and the US researcher in, in terms of that approach. In an ideal world, um, they would have been working a lot more closely on that process. I mentioned earlier that our team put together a findings document, which was then provided to the, the guys at Blink. And then they went through their synthesis of their findings and our findings in order to write a report. So we were kind of removed from that process as a pro, um, yeah. other than providing input into it when they had questions. Yeah. So I would say that that, that overall synthesis was done um, by the Blink guys rather than us. Yeah, okay. All right, we will leave it there. There are a couple of other questions in the Q&A panel. Uh, Sean, if you... Uh, can take a look and maybe um, we'll pop an answer in there. Thank you so much for your time. That was great. Okay. Thanks, guys.